Hello, welcome to the Content and Community Podcast. I'm your host, Ashley Ashby. I'm an inbound marketing strategist, coach, and writer. In this episode, I spoke with Brian Sowards. He has a lot of experience building and nurturing startups, and we chatted about how people can get involved in their communities in a way that will support their goals and help them build a full and conscious life. He's a product designer, investor, and since we just recorded this episode, now the CEO of Supersynchronous, which helps companies develop internal systems without code. Check the show notes on my website at ashleyashby.com podcast for the transcript and links to Brian's work. Enjoy! We've been talking a lot about how to um, network in a way that's really meaningful and in, in really uh, has a good workflow for someone's particular goals. And this podcast basically is all about how to make that as efficient as possible so you can ensure you're getting an actual return on your networking and your marketing and how those two things intersect. So thanks so much for joining me. It's it's really uh, your your ex- expertise and interests are really right up, right up in gear with what the podcast is all about. So welcome and thank you. My pleasure. It's an honor to be here. Ah, nice. So I'm a, I call myself a workflow dork. <laughs> and I've been experimenting a lot with how to network in a way that's not terribly disruptive, but also allows for a lot of testing. And I'm interested in how you test your own networking and how you decide what works and what doesn't. I also am a workflow flow dork. So now we are a workflow dork group, I guess. <laughs> Making I've been sure to stay awkward. <laughs> yeah, I've been, I've been I've been thinking of turning that into a hashtag. I I can't tell you how many times I describe myself that way. <laughs> It's it's a strong title and it's a, it's a thread that runs through my whole career. I just get obsessed with friction that happens in the way workflows are set up and uh, the unintended consequences of the assumptions we make about the way the world should work or the way people should behave instead of the way it actually does happen. <laughs> so it's a it's definitely a fun area to explore. Uh, when it comes to networking, I think there's a few things that I've noticed. Uh, you know, I've been fortunate to build up a few thousand followers on Twitter. Uh, got to the point on LinkedIn where I was getting 10,000 views on my posts. And now I'm having a great time uh, playing around in Clubhouse uh, where, you know, I'm gathering a few hundred followers a week. And it's, you know, a really interesting new space to experiment in. I was just synthesizing for a startup team today my philosophy on networking. And I think one of the first things that I would say that I've learned is not to put pressure on yourself. Uh, I think this is, you know, generally good advice when you're going into a new area, but a lot of times because we both have a lot of fears and nerves around doing something, we can sort of need to hype or psych ourselves out to uh, actually do things. And uh, when you look at sort of the biological nature of fear, uh, the way that it plays out in our body. One of the real signatures of someone that's afraid, an animal that's afraid, is freeze. So, Mm. you know, uh, a lot of the advice that I see tries to contextualize networking or producing content as a performance exercise, right? You're gonna go to the gym or you're gonna do your morning meditation. And I think when we put that kind of pressure on an activity like this, we end up trying to motivate ourselves with external uh, sources of motivation, what psychologists refer to as extrinsic. And what I've noticed for myself is that it's really all about finding my connection to my own voice, to what the community wants to talk about, and the people who are inclined to be part of the conversation. So I've uh, been through a lot of different careers in my life, meaning that I was jumping into entirely new communities with their own culture and context and power brokers. And I think one of the things that I'm grateful to myself for giving myself that lesson uh, through my life is 
Um, I've actually found that the way that people try to build walls up around community or be power brokers of community um, is, is, is actually pretty predictable. It's, it's pretty common wherever you go. And so the first question that I always like to ask and encourage anyone that I'm working with to ask is, where does your permission come from? Where does your sense of permission come from? Is it something that you need to get from someone else, or is it something you're willing to give yourself? And I think if we're all being honest, we probably need a little bit of both, but it's really important um, in finding your place in a network that's healthy for you, where your relationship with the network is working for you, and there's that positive feedback loop, you're excited to be a part of the community, you're ex excited to meet new people, you're excited to have new conversations. All of that really begins with uh, the willingness to be brave, to have courage, to feel the fear that you're feeling, and give yourself permission to try something anyway. Yeah, that that really speaks, I think, to the tendency a lot of people have to um, fixate on vanity metrics. Because that's 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 a way to measure validation, not a way to measure um, like a proof of proof of you know you're on the right path. And I'm wondering if maybe that maybe that fear is partly what drives that tendency to focus on things that 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 measure or what we perceive anyway to measure um, you know outside validation instead of something that actually shows if you're on the right track. You know, a lot of startups I found or companies in general that, you know, they, they look at, at a lot of vanity metrics as a way to um, figure out if they're, you know, likely to scale their business. And that's just not a way to measure that. But, but because they're so fixated on this idea that it's a way to measure what people think of them, it's hard for them to get on the right track of like what a true objective is. Yeah, I think this is uh, a part of the limitations of success culture. So I was a part of a, an EdTech founders conversation and someone made a point that I thought was very profound and very relevant in this age where we want to be able to measure what matters, but that's actually not possible. And we keep uh, getting into an argument with ourselves about it. And his story was that, you know, he's a very successful lawyer, graduated from Harvard. And when he would go to his class reunion, you know, 10 or 20 years later, on paper, everyone in the room was the same, right? They, they all made about the same amount of money. They all had, you know, very successful partners. They lived in fancy places and had, you know, access to a, a luxurious lifestyle around the world. And yet some of them loved what they were doing and they loved their partners. Like they were happy in their life and some of them were absolutely miserable. They were trading their life for these external markers. And so they were a successful lawyer on paper, but they hated going into the office every day. They had, you know, a beautiful partner, but they didn't enjoy their company. And I think we're at an inflection point amongst those who are rising up in society now, where that, that's becoming a very real and pertinent question that we're all asking ourselves, which is, what am I creating all this for? Mm, why? <laughs> yeah, and I think that we are leaving behind what has been couched as a traditional way of looking at things, but is really very new. This is an old, old conversation, right? You can go back to the Stoics and see this conversation, um, which is the idea that you make your money or you get your success first, and then everybody will listen to you, and then you can do something meaningful. Mm. I've been fortunate to meet uh, several billionaires in my life, and that is not how they feel about their success. What they feel is they traded the rarest and most precious thing they have, their time, to only find out where they are now, that doing something that matters to themselves and humanity was all that was worth pursuing in the first place. So I think that when you come into the world of influencers, thought leaders, networking, founders, 
um, you know, individuals who are really focused on growing their network or becoming more influential in it, you can see a stark difference between those who uh, are seeking success and those who are intrinsically motivated to do it. Um, I'm going to go back to Clubhouse again because that's where I'm really finding the most interesting, fresh conversations. But Mr. Beast was on Clubhouse. Uh, he's the most successful YouTuber in the world um, right now. And he talked about the fact that he goes to sleep and he wakes up every day. And his goal is to come up with a hundred concepts for a YouTube video every day. And his team was on the call and they were talking about how awesome and overwhelming that was because he actually does it. Wow. When you hang out with Instagrammers or YouTubers or Twitch streamers, anyone who has a following of highly engaged uh, you know, members, a million or more, these people are obsessed with creating content that's interesting to their community and they never approach the question as if they already know the answer. It's a grand experiment. So I think that's the difference between a craftsperson and someone who's chasing a success formula. Yeah, I think the people who um, are not really sure how to go about networking, I think that's a really good way for them to look at it. Look at it from a place of, I'm not just coming here to talk about something and give a lecture on something, but I'm coming here to learn. I'm coming here to listen and, and be part of a community and be on a level playing field with other people. And I think that that kind of humility inspires content because you're not only learning things, you know, look, you're identifying gaps and things, but you're meeting people who instill this wonder in you that, that you, you, you just don't have if, you, if you're only there to talk about yourself or broadcast an idea or you have to look at it as, as a way of listening and a way of community. And that makes it easier too. It's so much easier to create content when you're, you know, focusing on just talking. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, as someone who's been a passionate advocate for many different communities, um, I've learned to accept... Uh, sort of a fundamental signal of health. Is the community growing or is it shrinking or stagnant? If a community is shrinking or stagnant, it's not generally a good place for people who are looking to build relationships because social capital has become a zero-sum game. And I also think there's just something that's fundamentally true about people, which is the more that we authentically connect, we create more value than we bring into the room with us. And so, to be blunt, it's natural in a healthy network for it to grow. And sometimes, you know, the reason that a community is stagnant or blocked is because you have to go through a profound life experience to be a part of it. So it's not necessarily... Um, a rule that a community that isn't growing is a bad place to be. But if you're new to networking and you want to learn how to do it, finding communities that are growing is probably the first friendly thing you can do for yourself. Because not only will there be lots of permission for you to contribute and make mistakes, but people will be thrilled that you're there. I remember someone first year out of college who got on LinkedIn and started just imitating what they saw other successful LinkedIn people were doing and creating conversations. And she got tons of comments of people just saying, wow, you're really doing great. I can't believe this is your first LinkedIn post. And the reason they knew that is she told them. So mm. I think there's this wild dynamic that when you're new to a network, you feel really shy about admitting that you don't know what you don't know. And if it's a community of craftspeople, if it's a community of people who really are invested in the intrinsic motivations for being there, they will celebrate you. You are like an achievement for the community that there's one more person who's come on board. So your vulnerability is incredibly powerful. And if you want to learn more about that, you know, Brene Brown has done a TED Talk on vulnerability. It is one thing, of course, to watch it and believe it. It's another thing to live it. I feel vulnerable all the time. I feel like maybe I probably shouldn't be saying what I'm saying 
all the time. And, and that's part of the beauty of being willing to say something new. Yeah. I've heard a lot about Brene Brown. I'm going to look up that talk. <laughs> that sounds really interesting. But yeah, I think that's, that's so valuable for people to know. I mean, it's, you know, when people, a lot of times people come to me and they're, you know, to work with me on something and, and they're, they're skeptical of community because they, it hasn't worked for them. And then I, I do some digging with them to figure out like what their involvement was, or I, I just look it up and they were coming at it as a way to push whatever they're promoting and show off how, um, superior they are about. And of course I would never say this to a client, you're acting superior, but, <laughs> but it's when you come at it from that angle, when you're not humble, when you're not there to contribute, when you're not identifying that the people there are interested on a level playing field as you, it's not going to work. It doesn't matter what cool things you have to say. It doesn't matter if it's in demand, you know, that type of information is in demand. People will not be receptive to it and it will either be dead air or you'll actually make people angry. So it's a waste of your time and you can actually hurt yourself if you approach it that way. And it's also just more work, you know, because then you have to basically write a PR release and put it, put it in a group somewhere. That's, that's a lot of work and it doesn't do anything. So I think it's important to know whether or not you're part of a learning organization or you have a client that has a learning mindset. If you're bringing a learning mindset, I completely agree. And the real question is, are you willing to learn from those experiences? Because if you are, you will learn that your place at the table uh, is the same for everyone. That's what community is. It's a voluntary act to congregate with others. And so people don't have to have you in the group. They don't have to listen to you. They don't have to engage with you. That's a choice on their part. And when we respect everyone as equals, that's when we get a chance to really say something and have it be received. Yeah, for sure. So that's a great takeaway for anyone who's listening, that if you um, are struggling about what communities to participate in, or if you're looking for a way to vet which ones you should invest your time in to get the most benefit, and also just to feel better about your work and learn about yourself and your business, um, look for something that's growing and look for something that um, has people who are participating on a level playing field and it's welcoming and it's, um, yeah. And those are the best too. I mean, who wants to talk to someone who's just, bragging or not saying anything. I mean, it's just in person, you wouldn't want to do that. It's not fun. So I think approach it as 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 if you were going into a room full of people. You know, you, you don't want to behave differently online than you would in person. I, I think that's part of the, you know, inflection point we're at is I think that people used to think of themselves as um, only um, offline as who they are. And they were communicating through the computer, through text messaging, through Zoom with each other. And you can really tell the difference between people who are approaching it that way. Um, and, you know, the way we're having this conversation, you and I could be having tea right now on the couch and, and just having a conversation back and forth and it would be just as comfortable, right? I knew I was, I was going to forget to put the kettle on. I like to... <laughs> I like to I, I, Speak of the devil, I actually like to have a cup when I'm doing a podcast or any kind of thing. It just for the same reason you're you're saying it's it creates a sense of warmth and that's that's what I want. You know, that's why I'm talking to people because I want I want it to be human. I want it to be warm. Yeah, um I think that if we're willing to think of consciousness the same way we think of gravity, which is something we have a word for but we really have no idea what it is. Um you you get to have a a point of view that says we can be we can be conscious together. We can be learning from each other and connecting with each other as full people, um, even though we don't necessarily have the cues or the rituals to which we've been accustomed. And I, I think it is really important to say at this point that uh, you know certainly my children and I and and you we've all grown up in a world where the way in which people communicate changes so rapidly 
that we've actually adapted to that idea. The fact that there's another network or another tool or another approach is just one more fun thing to try, and you either wait for other people to try it first, or you try it first, right? <laughs> and uh, and I think that for some some people coming into what has been you know an exponential century in terms of technology and communication. Uh, that they, they maybe came late to the party and felt that they've lost these rituals and, and, and maybe that it's not even possible for them to fully participate in this digitally native world. I feel really grateful in our current you know, trials and tribulations as a globe that I think a lot of people are beginning to realize, no, you know, like if you get past that awkward Zoom call 10 or 20 times, eventually you just get around to saying, you know what, <laughs> this is what I look like today. And I had to take my cat to the vet, so I'm feeling a little frazzled. You know, we've, we've just started talking like real people again. And um, I really think that that's true anywhere you go, any network that you're in, uh, that, that, that being real and being relevant pay off. So you, you cut off for a sec. Can you repeat those that last little phrase? Sure. Um, you know, I, I really think that when it comes to networking, being real and being relevant really pay off. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I think a lot of people, um, uh, you know, I, I find one of the, the ways that helps me network with people and get, sometimes I can be shy too. And I sort of use that shyness to, to my advantage, not just for making it easier on myself, but for actually helping my business. So I can be that person who welcomes you and breaks the ice. And that's not only making me feel comfortable and helping you open up a little more and maybe feel lose a little bit of that alienation you were talking about, but you're also going to remember me more. And because we're having this open conversation that you might not have otherwise had because you're a bit closed off for whatever reason, and plenty of them are valid. Um, I learned so much about how I can best serve the types of people that I want to serve or work better with people or, and the other person gets a lot of that too. So being, using shyness as a way to open a door, I think has been the biggest game changer for me. And it's also helped me figure out, I use it as a, as a vetting tool, you know, cause if I do that and it doesn't work and the person is still closed off, and everyone in that group is closed off. I mean, that can tell me one of two things. It can tell me that group is not a good fit for me, for whatever reason. It doesn't mean they're mean or anything. It's just maybe it's not a good fit. Or it could mean that um, what I'm doing isn't working. So I might need to retool it a bit. So yeah, like overcoming shyness. There's so many different ways to learn about yourself and your approach to networking by just trying to just by just be literally just being a human and being open and nice. Yeah, I love how you include your shyness instead of making it uh, something to overcome. That's a really uh, amazing way to relate to yourself. And it sounds like you, uh, you've already made a difference in other people's lives because of that. Thank you. I think that's partly what attracted me to being a coach is I, 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 I like that feedback. I like when people feel like they can be more open because they talk to me or be, or, or because I talked to a specific person, I learned a lot about something that I've been meaning to learn about. Like in retooling my whole business model, all I've been doing is talking to people. I mean, I think that's how we met on LinkedIn. I literally just have conversations with people and it, it, it gives me incredible business intelligence so that I can create different revenue streams. And so it's, it's not just this like, fluffy stuff that doesn't matter. It's if you do it well, and you do it humanly, that's what pays off. That's what gives you the return. Yeah, I think this is a maybe a fun opportunity to peel the onion on the network a little bit, shall we? <laughs> so yeah. we talked about when you approach a new network, um, actually, the fastest way to kind of bond to it is to, uh, you know, be welcoming to the other people who are joining, right? Um, and, and this is something you know, sociologists and psychologists have been studying for a long time is that uh, groups actually kind of form in bands the way like tree rings do, right? And 
um, some of the things that I've noticed in being a part of networks is that when you take that role, you capture the attention of the people who are at the center of the network because their primary concern is reaching those who aren't in. Uh, you know, sometimes uh, some people might classify this servant leadership or they might uh, classify it as being emotionally intelligent. And so I think that one of the things that you just highlighted is when you run into a pretentious network, um, that you should believe them. In other words, if they seem to be icing people out, if they seem to be um, disinterested in welcoming others in, then I, in, in my mind there's two things to look for. Number one, is this a community that has to constantly ward off people that are trying to exploit them? Mm. Um, I think LinkedIn is actually a grand experiment of this. It's professionals who want to come together and have conversations. And it's an opportunity for those who can contribute value and solve problems to do the same. Uh, when you approach that network, however, with you know that outbound, I'm the only voice that matters kind of approach, um, you see a very elaborate defense mechanism growing. And what I find spectacular is you can literally invest 10 minutes in an interaction and become a one in a million point of connection for that person. I'll give you, give you some illustrations. So when I was first entering a new industry and I had no contacts in it, what I would do is I would find people who were part of companies that I thought were interesting that worked in that industry and I would look at their LinkedIn profile, I would see what they would talk about, and I would just find if there was something I was curious about or that I thought was cool or that I felt that I had something I could say about. And so when I would send them a connection request on LinkedIn, I would include that. I would say, hi, you know, I'm so-and-so, I'm new to the industry. I noticed on your profile that you talk about, you know, in my case, HR operations. I'm curious what you've been learning about metrics as you've been designing those systems. Thanks, Brian. That's it. I formed uh, close relationships with those people almost immediately, got invited to, to banquets and to do business together and all kinds of things because my starting investment was with them as a person and what they were interested in. You can't do that today with any kind of brute force approach. So just by letting yourself be simple and open and direct, you, uh, you, that, that door is still open. And this is, I think, something really underappreciated by those that are still coming into the career world or still coming into founding a company is the people at the top, the people that you view are the most successful, are often the most interested in supporting you as a newcomer to the space. Um, one of my absolute favorite investors on earth, who I would love to have as an investor, said that 50% of his investments came from a cold email. So you really do have an extraordinary opportunity at this time to communicate with someone as a person and open a door uh, by doing that. Yeah, I think you just shared a really great example of cold email or cold calling as being a human personal thing. I think a lot of times we just think of it as a straight hustle. It's really impersonal. It's really generic. And it just doesn't have to be that way. And you don't have to also don't have to reserve it to uh, people who you think, um, you know, would bestow upon you the great honor of talking to you. You know, if you look at it as everyone is above you and no one would want to talk to you, um, that doesn't work either. That's a really awesome example. And I also like how we've spoken before and you reference um, psychology research and sociology research. And what, what do you think people could, should be reading from that to, get, to learn more about networking? How should people research those principles to, to see how they can apply them to their own strategy? Well, uh, following in Joseph Campbell's the hero of the, <laughs> the hero's journey, right? So, 
if I'm the crazy old guy in the woods that's telling you there's a secret book that you can read that tells you how to do all of this stuff that no one's ever heard of, <laughs> here's that book. So it's called Diffusions of Innovation. It is several hundred pages thick. Uh, someday I hope to write a New York bestseller that's just a distillation of it, to be honest. Just make it business class accessible. So it's, it's an academic uh, tome, but it was authored by Dr. Everett Rogers. Now here's a fun question, right? Everyone's heard of the early adopter, right? We all know that concept, but do you have any idea who invented it? Nope, no clue. Dr. Everett Rogers. And here's the best part. Here's Sorry how- Sorry to interrupt you. I just oh, wanted to say hi to your cat. Hello, oh, yes. Cat. Well, see, <laughs> my cat wants an exit. Hang on. All right, Seamus. <laughs> your door is open. And yes, my cat is named Seamus after the wee baby Seamus in Archer, the adult FX cartoon series. <laughs> oh. Well, bye, Seamus. Thanks for joining us. <laughs> Thanks, Seamus. We haven't gotten tattoos yet, though. Uh, so, so take a, take a ride with me for a moment. You're in a field in Iowa, and there are just dying plants for as far as you can see. And you're hanging out with a farmer, and you're a geeky grad student from the local university. And you're there because as a student, and now as a part of the faculty research team, you've been sitting at meeting after meeting after meeting, where everyone's saying, we figured out how to solve their problem, why won't they use the methods that we give them? Because this was the issue for the federal government. It was an issue of survival for our citizenry. Uh, universities were inventing ways of producing far more food with less resources and greater resilience, but the farming communities were not adopting them. And so he decided to take his clipboard and go out and talk to 500 farmers. I want just to note for a second that this is always the genesis of innovation. The genesis of innovation is always going out and talking to a lot of people. Mm. And instead of confronting them with why they wouldn't accept things that had been proven by science, he asked them how they thought about things. He asked open-ended questions. He asked them how things were going. How did they, you know, when they learned about a new farming practice, how did they think about whether or not it was worth trying or not? And after years of research, he recognized that it is not the best innovation that wins, but the one easiest to adopt. And he created the adoption curve and the concept of the early adopter. And I am so passionate about this message for founders and change makers because it's really important. A lot of times there are communities that don't actually have the knowledge or the skills they need to solve their problems. Someone who wants to help that community, often because it's touched their lives in some personal way or the lives of someone they love in some personal way, is a change maker. And the most important thing to understand is that you will never be trusted by that community in the way that you might want. For one simple reason, the stakes are different. In the farmer's case, the university could put out uh, farming innovation methodologies, but if they didn't work, they still had their job next year, and the farmers knew that. Whereas if the farmers took a risk on a new you know, uh, approach to farming and it failed, they could lose the family farm. Generations of work could be gone. The stakes were very different for them. This is always true. And what Dr. Everett Rogers has proven over 50 years of iterative research, whether it's an NGO trying to get sex workers in Thailand to use protection and get tested on a regular basis, or mothers um, who were dehydrated in Sub-Saharan Africa and needed to use formula to ensure their babies didn't develop horrible nutrition deficit diseases. Whatever the case may be, it was that humility that you mentioned really comes down to, I think, accepting upfront that the people you want to help 
have different stakes in life than you do. And so it's not your job to convince them to change their mind. That's the job of the early adopter. One of the mm, yeah. advocates. Advocates. Okay, so there's a few things you learn about early adopters when you study them. And while there are certainly exceptions to this, the pattern is exceedingly strong. Early adopters tend to be the people in the community with the most money, the most freedom to say what they think, and the most freedom to try new things. I've noticed that if I look at, for example, LinkedIn or Twitter, the, the, a lot of times the people, unless they're anonymous, like on Twitter, a lot of times the people who are most innovative or most brazen about their ideas are the people who don't have something to lose by saying them. Right. And they are, uh, this is the miracle of the first follower. If you've never seen the video, there's a video of this TED Talk called The First Follower at a music festival. And there's this guy, and he's dancing weird, and he is weird. He's basically me. And, <laughs> and everyone else is just sitting and, and watching this jam band go crazy. You know, they're having a good time. They're out in the sun. They're talking with their friends. And this dude's losing his mind. And you can tell, like, there's a group of friends, and they're just kind of looking at him, and they're talking about him. And one of them gets up. And just starts dancing with this guy because he thinks it's hilarious. But now he's having fun, right? And so some of his group joins him and other people start joining him. And soon the entire festival is dancing like crazy people, like they're made out of spaghetti. And the important thing is we focus all of our stories on the innovator. But innovators are weird. I'm weird. You know, like people mm -hmm. who come up with stuff are weird. And it's the first follower that actually is the one that turns it into a movement. And the first follower is really the first early adopter. So when we think about networking as founders especially, the most important thing we can do is to connect with those who have the most permission to check out new things. And you're going to find that some of them really have a personal badge of pride that they all show their friends what's new, hip, and interesting out there. And their message to everybody is, I try things out because if it doesn't work, then you don't have to worry about it. I'll tell you about the things that don't work, but the things I'm, if I tell you something works, it's because it worked for me. And that, that honor system is present in every single network. So innovation has always been social innovation. It's always been about do people believe? Will they change their behavior? And the results that they get, does it actually uh, bring them closer to the group and give them positive results? So Diffusions of Innovation is the absolute tome, I'll confess, I cried when I read it. It was like reading Aww. my own journal. You read story after story of people who want to you know, make the world a better place. And what they go through and the barriers that they face and what made this doctor such a genius is he accepted the barriers and he found new ways to connect. And that to me is what, you know, adoption and networking is all about. Yeah, I love the, the metaphor of the, the guy who gets up dancing and that's when that's when people start going out there. It's someone has to start it. Yeah, I think. Um, ah. Brain fart. Oh, right. <laughs> that always happens to me when I'm talking. Anyway, the um, in other podcast episodes, and as I speak, none of these have aired yet, um, but we've all been talking about how to, um, you know, the difference between focusing on influencers and the difference between focusing on advocates. And there's a clear distinction. Do not think that just because someone has a lot of followers that that makes them worth investing in. It's that's not a way to measure who you should be talking to. The people who who tend to be uh, most invested in the solution to the problem or the value of the community or who, as you're saying, like who have the biggest stakes, those often are the people that that are the most valuable to talk to. And it's also more scalable, too, because you know, you can, 
you generally have a greater lifetime value with those people. You know, they might, they're more likely to refer you to, to their friends. They're more likely to um, give you greater intelligence that will allow you to adapt even more strongly. So I, I, I'm, I'm so big on advocacy. I'm so glad that you brought that up. <laughs> yeah, I think you, you really zero in on, are we getting resources or are we opening ourselves to resources? Ah, yes. That's a good way to put it. You know, if I were to look around myself right now, I am surrounded by millions of dollars worth of assets, right? I'm in a house, I'm on land owned by the, you know, that's zoned by the government. I have gadgets. There, there's, it's, if you just recognize for a moment that you are literally surrounded by wealth and then you look at a network and you realize that when you connect with people as equals, you get a chance to learn how to shift the way that you look at things to open resources. So, you know, you have something to offer and someone may have a need, but the connection between the two of you is something different entirely. And learning that connection and how to make it is really where, you know, the superstar entrepreneurs live. Yeah, we, there's there's this huge misconception I find about successful entrepreneurs that, you know, they're so above everyone and they're, you know, don't have any time for, you know, the regular guy. And, you know, politically, I'm, I'm sure some of that is true in some circumstances. But at the end of the day, I mean, the most successful people are successful because they know that they have to solve a problem and they know that they have to solve not just a problem, but a problem that's excruciatingly painful. And you cannot elicit that kind of intelligence unless you listen. And then unless you're in some way, in some capacity on a level playing field with the people you want to serve, the people you want to, you know, get business from. Yeah. And that's, I, I think, you know, that's the difference between looking at commerce as exchange and emergent value creation. When we co-create with others, we create something more valuable than either of us brought into the room um, or different in value than what we brought into the room. And when we approach our partners that way, uh, we get to let go of a lot of things. Do you mind if I bring it back to our workflow dork conversation? Oh, yes. Yes, totally. So you can apply this mental model to all of the things that we've been talking about. I'm going to take a moment to uh, talk about myself <laughs> and the transformation <laughs> that, that, that I went through um, because uh, as a fairly bright young person, uh, I was convinced I was right most of the time and uh, often I was and yet still I was very ineffectual. <laughs> <laughs> and um, one of the, you know, there's a, there's a principle of how you do one thing is how you do everything. So I began to really take that to heart. And here's one thing that I noticed that I was doing personally, that I see a lot of companies intentionally building that is fundamentally flawed. And what that is, is building a workflow that is convenient for me and then brute forcing my way into making it work in the world. Here's a simple example. When I join a team, I might prefer to have conversations face to face. I might prefer to have conversations over Slack. I might prefer to have conversations over email first, right? And so the way that I communicate with others, I might do all of my communication with them via email. And because I'm a systems thinker, I took this to the nth degree. I built out my system so that I could communicate where I preferred to, and it would populate out to all the other channels where people were responding on my team. And people still felt found me out of touch, um, not really helpful, to be honest. And even when it was really important or really urgent, um, I, I was unsuccessful in moving things forward. So, so I did a 180. And when I join a new team now, or I create one, one of the first questions I ask is, how do you like to be communicated with? And I'll end up with an individual communication profile for each person. Well, text me first, and then if I don't listen, you know, if I don't respond to you on text, then Slack me. And someone else might be the opposite, right? Someone might say, please never call me. Uh, you know, I'm, I, I have to be available for customer calls. 
but just, you know, shoot me an email unless it's urgent, then send it to me in Slack. Now, as I'm explaining each of this, these items to you, of course, your, your brain starts to fill up, right? How am I supposed to keep track of everyone? Well, I built myself a tracking system. So, uh, you know, when I join a team, I build my own spreadsheet of the people and I build how they like to be communicated with. And I build it in columns. Email, this is what how someone thinks of email. This is how they think of phone. This is how they think of chat. And by doing that, what I found is that I get this synaptic connection because now when I have something to say, I know how to say it to that person where there is zero cognitive effort on their part to uh, engage with what I have to say. So I'm, so I'm going to blow up something that I think is an urban myth of marketing. And I, I literally just heard someone in the PR space say this the other day, and I could not disagree more strongly. Her view was that what you need to do is come up with your message and then tailor it to each medium. I could not begin to equate my Instagram life with my LinkedIn life, with my clubhouse life. They're different. There's, there's so many things about them that are different. Why I'm there, who I'm there with what we talk about. So I really encourage What the other people are there for. Yeah. There it is. That's that's the yeah. whole thing, right? The whole thing is why is the community there in the first place? You know, the conversation you're going to have at Burning Man is just going to be different than when you're getting your oil changed. Um, and so... <laughs> I guess it depends on who you are, Brian. <laughs> Unless you meet that burner at the oil change station. Yeah, um, really. You know what I mean? So... And even then, the conversation you have on the playa is going to be different than, you know, probably on the cement. So that's that's the thing is I think that we've built we've built a very narcissistic philosophy behind our systems and our technology. And the beauty is, again, just a small shift that can at first feel foreign and overwhelming. And that's OK because it's new. But just a small shift that says, I'm going to think of every person I communicate with as an individual. I'm going to notice how they use the tools. And I'm going to adapt how I communicate to them so that I meet them where they are. You will become a craftsperson. You'll become an expert. Because that to a craftsperson, everything is unique. And that's how you get excellence. That's how you get people you want to hang out with. And that's how you get to do the best work of your life. Yeah, I think if someone, uh, a friend or an acquaintance, uh, was very rigid about connecting with me only in a certain way, I probably wouldn't open as much to them and I wouldn't want to talk to them as much and I, I would be fairly closed off. And I think you're so right to point off that that being versatile to other people's flow doesn't necessarily mean that it's inefficient. You can have, you can create a system for making that work so that you're doing the right thing for the right audience in the right setting. Uh, really well said. Thank I, you. I, I think that, um, you know, one of the things I like about the way you're approaching this conversation is it feels like the person is first in your mind. And um, what a wonderful starting place because it's the truth, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. It really is. It really is. I think a lot of a lot of people who struggle to look at it the way we're looking at it, it's um, I'm not sure what it is. I think that's partly my job as as a coach. You know, that's that's partly what's going to be difficult about developing my coaching is is figuring out like where did people learn that being inhuman is the way to go? Like, did someone teach them this? Is it more, um, you know, are they guarded and it's like a defense mechanism? Is it just because these new mediums of communication or these new media of communication are so new that, that, that people are just, you know, wary of behaving how they would normally? It's really, really interesting. So as an ed tech entrepreneur, I have both thought about, taken, conducted experiments and experienced um, the reasons why personally, uh, to a very, uh, to a very sharp degree. And, mm. uh, of course I don't have the answer, right? I think the questions you're asking are really powerful and, and worth asking. Why do I feel that I have to prioritize external validation over my own development, the things that I value? Why have I been taught 
Or how did I come to believe that my voice is inherently less important in guiding my own life than others? And um, I think that when you look at little children, one of the things that I notice with children is that they are inventing themselves. So they're taking what they came into the world with and uh, what they're, you know, the, the way in which others are interacting with them or behaving with each other. And they're sort of inventing their patterns of interactions. And when you get into education, you know, many people have pointed this out. But really, we're going on a whole generation of researchers and activists and visionaries pointing this out, all the way back to Maria Montessori, one of the first celebrity women engineers who was so appalled with how difficult it was to get companies to behave creatively that she created an education program to solve the problem. And many, if not most, of founders have some Montessori education in their background. But it's because it has been taken from them if you really look at educational performance and you look at where children come from, from many different schools and, and approaches to education, one of the things that you will find is that there are many, 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 many ways to educate a child to the point that they are competent and successful in the way that we measure it today. The main difference between the system we have now and most of those alternative systems is the emotional and mental health of the child. So, you know, artists have gone, you know, as Stephen King noted that when he would go talk about being an artist to different grades, he would notice that if he asked, who here is an artist to kindergartners, almost every child would raise their hand. And as each progressive grade went on, fewer and fewer children would raise their hands until only that one weird kid did, you know? Um, and so it's important to just uh, get curious about how we were educated because we were taught that getting a good grade was more important than what was going on with us. We were taught that passing the test was all really anyone cared about at the end of the day. And so it's kind of a, a cruel irony that when we show up in life and we try to run that script, it kind of works, but it seems to only work for people who are interested in exploiting us. Mm, yes. Yeah. And that's because that's exactly what it's intended to do. Yeah, it is. Um, I think that's a great point. A lot of people don't really look at, you know, I see it as a way of making people submissive. You know, for example, not to speak ill of my communications program or, or you know, attitudes that a lot of people have to new, new communications grads, but it took me a long time to learn to charge what I was worth and, and seek opportunities that I really, really wanted because I felt that I didn't deserve them. I felt like, um, you know, we, we, we always talk about, uh, what's the term? What's the term for, um, Grit? no, when you think bad about, you, you always think that you're unqualified for something. Imposter Hoster syndrome. Um, yes. Thank you. yes. <laughs> we got to my favorite topic. <laughs> yeah. And I think what, 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 you know, was never talked about in my, you know, a, a, in my world as a new grad or even as a student was that that imposter syndrome is not just something that, that you have because you have bad self-esteem. It's instilled in you a lot of the time in a lot of those kinds of systems because you're required to work for free. You are expected to do... Everything you're expected to do is so that you can put it on your resume, uh, irrespective of its value to you in your own professional development or whatever. Uh, you know, you're expected to do unpaid internships, you're supposed to work out of scope and not talk, you know, not be mad about it, not quit the job or whatever, just do whatever you can to appease people. And then I, you know, I was doing a lot of reflection about, you know, why I was so uncomfortable pursuing things that I really valued and pursuing higher pay and, and, and why I was not listening to that little gut that told me that someone was going to exploit me, even though I always knew it was happening. 
you know, I would keep working with that person or whatever. And a lot of it was because I had been conditioned by systems that I worked with that this was the, this is, this was required of me. And I had to unpack all of that before I could, you know, see my worth and focus on things that I thought were valuable. It's, yeah, it's, it's, I think it's really important for everyone to, to look at, you know, the things that, that instill that, that lack of confidence in them and, and work on that. That's part of your discovery to, you know, getting higher in the world is you, you need to figure out what's making you feel less than. I also think that you can step right into a bold choice, which is to say, I value myself. Yes. Is that something you feel comfortable saying now? Yes, yes. But it took a long time to get there. And I had to basically undo a lot of baggage. You know, I basically had to leave sectors that I was working in. I had to cut certain people out of my life, certain even friends. It's There's a lot of you know, when you unpack things, it's not just about, you know, self-talk and reading and that sort of thing. You really have to, you have to cut things out. And that's, I think maybe that's partly what people are scared of in networking is just what they'll have to give up in order to achieve what they want to do, yeah. you know, beliefs they hold or, or things that people have told them that, that, you know, validated something that made them feel a little more comfortable or, it's yeah, you re- it's it's you really have to peel back a lot of things that are comforting. Yeah, I think uh, there's a, a level at which we fear that inside us is nothing. And uh, of course that's true. <laughs> that we're we're nothing and everything, you know, uh, we're not an idea. I think, you know, the simplest definition I have for what is the ego is it is our idea of ourselves. We, you know, we have an existence that is uh, that stands alone, whether we're thinking about it or not. And you know, Alan Watts and others have, have done a great job laying this out. So I really walked through that journey myself, and it's painful to peel away parts of yourself um, because you're really afraid that there won't be anything there once it's gone. And I think that once you begin to take that journey, this new compassion for ourselves and for others really begins to grow, which is, of course it was there. It was there all the time, but no one was feeding it. And we were taught not to feed it too. So it's just, it's very little. And it needs our love and our care most of all. You know, I was just sharing with a really close friend. uh, It's your puppy. You know, it's, it's your, you, you want to conjure up that caregiving uh, energy for yourself because then you recognize that it's the most precious thing in the world and why would you trade anything for it? Yeah, and also with, with, with kind, you know, being kind to your puppy, you wouldn't chastise your puppy for being, uh, you know, for not doing something with, with knowledge it didn't have. You know, so, for example, I... As annoyed with myself as I am for, you know, not taking myself seriously and not, or, 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 you know, thinking that I had to do all this free volunteering and all this free this and free that and work for people who undervalued me and all this, I I can be, you know, I can be conscious of, of why that happened and how problematic it was for my career, but there's a reason I, I felt that and there's no sense in me beating myself up about having those things because I was undervalued and, you know, so I think it's important that everyone, when they're being kind to themselves, to not use that as a weapon to say like, oh, why did you do that? Yeah, I, I think we can, you know, uh, our, our society significantly overvalues judging ourselves and others, <laughs> right? It's, it's, not a, it's not a pretty, it's not a very useful habit <laughs> in the end. Um, I think, though, that you're illustrating something right now that is my hope for humanity and why I take a multi-generational view in terms of what I believe is possible for us to create, which is you taught yourself a skill which was to be yourself and to value it so much you were willing to change your life to live that way. 
That's now a gift you have to give to others. Pay it forward. Yeah. And the, it turns out that that's super natural. Like people who find things that they love have to tell other people about them. It's mm -hmm. unnatural to find something good and try to wall, build walls around it. It's, um, you know, there, there is a non-mammalian uh, sort of non-social way of calculating you know, human society and human interactions. And it is useful. It is. Um, but it's running the ship. And so we've ended up with a lot of things that calculate properly, but nobody's living a life they want to be living. <laughs> mm. Right. And, um, and, and I, and I wouldn't even say, you know, I, I don't even think that's fair to say anymore. I think we are seeing the blossoming of people and communities everywhere going, who do I really want to be in the world? And I'm going to build, I'm going to create the future that I want to live in. A good friend of mine, Alex Boyd, who founded Revenue Zen, um, and I were just chatting today, and he said, you know, it turns out human beings can change the future a lot better than we can predict it. Hmm. Yeah. And what an empowering message, too, that, that it's not, you know, we, we, we can change things. It doesn't matter if you've messed up your career for the first third of it. There's always ways to learn from that and derive value from that so that you can help others. I mean, I, I have become interested in, in doing public speaking at some point, um, you know, maybe when this is all over. And the whole way I got into that was I started doing talks for business communication students at my local university. And a lot of the themes of the talks were about, um, you know, how to avoid people taking advantage of you and why they shouldn't and how to position yourself in your own mind and to other people as a person of value. You know, you're not just doing the hours, you're not just doing the deliverable. There's value to everything that you're doing and no one should expect to get that for free. So that's kind of how I, I delved into a whole new way, uh, a whole new possible stream for my business, you know, is just using that as a tool to help other people. And it also helped me uh, do a better talk. And I learned a lot about, you know, getting feedback from people. And it's just, it was such an empowering experience to use what, what had been, you know, so problematic for my career and, and to take it and turn it into fuel yes. for not just my own business, but for other people that I, I still get feedback from some of those students that, you know, they, they know how they know their value and they know how to position it so that they can focus on things that they actually want and deserve. That is such a powerful story, Ashley. What a hero's journey. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, it was, it was, it was beautiful and it really, helped me overcome a lot of the anger I had about how I'd been treated and how, um, you know, slow my progress professionally had been because, you know, I turned it into something that helped other people and also helped myself. You know, I learned so much about myself and other com new communications professionals, and I got lots of business intelligence out of it. It was beautiful. Well, with that, I have a poem I'd love to close our Sure. Okay, this is, this is one that has helped me quite a bit um, in also making peace with, with my past and my feelings about myself for, uh, for failing to take care of myself the way that I you know, would want to. So here it is. Uh, I walk down the street. There's a hole in the street. I fall in. I climb out. I walk down the street. It's the same street. There's a hole in the street. I know there's a hole in the street. I watch myself fall in. I watch myself climb out. I walk down the street. I know there's a hole in the street. I walk around it and continue on my way. Nice. Yeah, it's so true, isn't it? What we learn from past experiences and how we have to kind of work on ourselves in order to really learn. You know, you can redo things over and over again and make the same mistakes, but until you work on yourself, you're going to keep doing it. You're going to keep falling through. Yeah, and give yourself 
uh, permission to come back. So just like in meditation, coming back to the present moment is the practice. It's not preventing yourself from thinking, right? And so it's the same thing with any behavior change is we, you know, we are creatures of habit. We crave the familiar as much as we crave stimulation. And so noticing that we tend to flow in circles, that we tend to move in spirals, right? When we're moving in a direction, we, we circle back to old places. And that's the beauty of that poem is it's permission to circle back to old places while you're watching yourself doing it because that's how we invent who we want to be next. Yeah, totally. And that's, to, to bring it back before we go, that's, that's also a great networking tool, you know, to, to, to figure out, um, you know, why you were uncomfortable maybe talking to certain groups before or why you were uncomfortable sharing certain insight or why you were kind of hesitant to listen to certain groups or really get, you know, be there to listen for intelligence instead of be there for broadcasting, like revisit why that was uncomfortable for you because you can you can learn so much about yourself without beating yourself up about you know having done the wrong thing or whatever so thank you so much for joining me brian this was lovely um is there anything uh you'd like to share anything you think that people should be reading anything that you want people to look up before we go yeah i think that uh the best teachers that I can recommend, the teachers that I'm learning from, are Gay and Katie Hendricks. And they have a, a nonprofit foundation called the Foundation for Conscious Living, foundationforconsciousliving.com. And the most accessible book that Gay has written, and he's been advisor to the CEO and founder of Dell, as well as to rock stars and actors and all kinds of amazing creative people who've birthed unbelievable, you know, uh, amazing lives as well as great art. Um, he has a book called The Big Leap. And The Big Leap is about really um, connecting with your unique genius, what you uniquely do in the world, and building your life around that. And I have recommend that book out to quite a lot of really smart and ambitious people. And they've said that it has been, you know, kind of like a drop in the water, like it ripples out through their lives and changes everything. And so that would be the starting place. And I would really encourage you if the things that we've talked about really resonate, the foundationforconsciousliving.com has just an incredible uh, amount of resources on how to develop your authentic self and make that the center of your life. Nice. Yeah. It's that's that all that stuff is really helpful in business. It's not just this, you know, fluffy life lesson stuff people think it is. It's totally applicable in business and life in general, and people feel better once they understand it. Yeah, it's how I get to have fun with billionaires. Like, <laughs> honestly, like it is. Like, I can hang I out the with... the booze is good. <laughs> with, <laughs> it is. With anybody, um, uh, you know, from any background, once you're yourself, you really are already every person's equal. And so you'll be amazed at the doors that open in your life when you choose that path. Nice. All right. Well, thanks so much, Brian, and I'm sure I'll talk to you soon. <laughs> Likewise, Ashley. Bye. Thanks so much, Brian. It was really, really nice chatting with you. We all have valuable things to contribute to communities, and finding what that is is so powerful. It was so awesome to explore that with Brian. You can visit his company's website at subsync.com. And check out the show notes on my website at ashleyashby.com slash podcast for the transcript and links to Brian's work. Thanks for listening and tune in next week.